in Colossians chapter 1, Paul has already told us that Christ is the image of God, his perfect likeness, the perfect manifestation of what God is before the world. He has told us that Christ is the creator of all things. And now he tells us what surely would logically follow, that Christ is the head of the church. We see him in this passage as the head of his own body, the church, and in his redeeming work of reconciliation. Now the means of this reconciling work of Christ was his death on the cross. The purpose of his reconciliation is the glory of God. That is that God might be glorified through the righteous living of his people and the condition of the Christian experiencing that reconciliation day by day is his faith in the Lord Jesus. In this passage, the church is seen both as a body and as a family. And so let us see the head of the body, the Lord Jesus, beginning in Colossians 1, 18. Now in verse 18, here is what I have called the preeminent head. Paul writes, he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything, or as the King James Version translates it, so that he might come to have the preeminence. As head, he is both superior to all other parts of the body, and as head, he exercises authority totally and unquestioningly over all of the body. The church is a living organism, and it thrives as does a body only when all the parts of the body are joined together and united. Like a body, every part <clears throat> of every church is necessary. Like a body, every part is different for a body requires an endless variety of functions from many different parts, not only the outward parts, but the inward parts that perform various functions. There are parts of the human body that medical science does not know what their function is, but they know that they're there and they must perform some function and so it is with the church. Every part is required. There is an endless variety required. But like a body, the church must be fully under the control of the head. For a body serves the head. A body moves at the bidding of the head. A body is dead without the head no matter if all the other parts are completely preserved and healthy. And just so the head is to the body, Christ is the guiding, directing, and dominating spirit of the true church. 
The true church is his. Now we need to define the terms. Paul was writing to the church at Colossae. A local church is a part of the true church. Now there is a word that has been taken away from us. It is the word Catholic. All of the old Baptist statements of faith from the 17th and 18th centuries say we believe in the holy Catholic church, the body of Christ. But in those confessions of faith, the word Catholic has a little c and it means universal church. You see, Christ does not have many bodies. He has one body and everybody, no matter what denomination, no matter what race, what language, what nation, who belongs to Christ belongs to the church. And then in a locality, a local church, a baptized body of believers becomes a part, a representation in that locality of the church. The true church is his, and all who truly belong to him are a part of his body. In the true church, every word and every action must be controlled and governed by the instructions that Christ gives us. Now, does it not follow that if we are a part of the body and if we are to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, we can only do that as we obey him? If he is the head, the body can only function as it obeys the head. And where and how do we find out what he has to say in his word. It is only through obeying Christ that we function as he would have the church to function and it is only through his word that we find out what he has to say. We cannot know truth. We cannot act correctly. We cannot make the proper decisions. We cannot go in his direction apart from his commandment and we cannot know what he says apart from his word. By undisciplined, careless, and self-willed living, a church can become unfit to be his instrument in its locality. The church is vitally dependent on Christ for its being, for its cohesion, and for its enemy, for its energy. He is the maker of all things. And is it not a wonder that the maker of all things is our Savior and our friend? The God the agent of creation, the perfect likeness of the Father who made everything that has ever been made, everything that was ever created is the same one who loves us and is our friend. Christ is the head of creation as Paul has told us in the previous verses of this chapter because he made creation. Creation was created to be his. And he is the head of the church 
because he bought the church with his own blood on the cross. He works in this world only through his body, the true church. He is the beginning, we are told. Now the word beginning in the Greek means more than simply he was the first one that came along in point of time. It means that he is the originating source of the church. He is the original source from which the church came. He is the original power from which the church was born. And every word and action must be governed by what he says. The church is vitally dependent on Christ. We are told he is the firstborn from the dead. As such, he was the first one that was truly resurrected. I remember what an excitement it was for me to, to finally understand what the resurrection really meant. For one time, several years ago, or it's been longer than several, I hate to say it, 10, 12, 15 probably, in a Sunday school class in college, we got to talking about that. And they said, now wait a minute. There was a man whose uh, body was in the tomb and they, uh, or the prophet's body was in the tomb and they were about to bury him and, and along came a band of marauders and they threw in the body and it touched the bones of Elisha, the man of God, and he sprung to life and went off alive. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead even though he'd been dead for four days. We got to talking about it. Jesus touched the hand of the little girl and said, I say unto you, maiden, arise. And she got up and arose. It says that when Christ was crucified, the earth trembled and the sky was darkened and tombs were opened and holy men of old walked the streets of Jerusalem, but they were not resurrected, they were resuscitated. For you see, old Lazarus was just as good as new when he came out of the tomb, but good as new is not very good at all. For in a short period of time or a long period of time, sooner or later, old Lazarus got sick and died again. But Jesus was raised from the dead never to die again. In a body not subject to decay, not subject to death or disease in a perfect and permanent and eternal resurrection body. He is the firstborn from the dead. And we share within the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus because of our union with him. And then Paul says, in order that or so that, he himself, he specifically, that is emphatic, he himself and only he might come to have first place in everything or the preeminence in everything. He is supreme. He has conquered all. And the question that Colossians 1.18 gives to the church is, does he have first place in all things? The answer is yes, if we are like Christ, if we do what he says, if 
we obey him? And the answer is no, if those things are not true. The song sung a moment ago says, so send I you. Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father hath sent me, so send I you. How did the Father send Jesus? That's the way that he sends us. How did the Father send Jesus? He sent him to obey his words. Jesus said, even though Jesus was the heir of the throne of the universe, Jesus says twice in John chapter five or three times, John five, John six, and John 12, that even he did not do what he wanted to do, but he did what the Father told him to do. And yet we find ways to rationalize doing what we want to do in direct contradiction to what God says. Does he have the preeminence? He either does or he doesn't. And then in verse 19, here is the fullness of God. Now, later in this book, Paul will expand on this statement, but the statement is, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Everything that God is, he is in Jesus Christ. All of God is in Jesus. It pleased God to give all to Christ. And we are told by the apostle John in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. The fullness of deity dwells in him. The sum total of all God's power and attributes are in Christ. Now the word dwell is a word that means a permanent place of abiding. When uh, Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus along with James and John, he asked the Lord a question. He said, Lord, why don't we stay here for a while? Let me pitch a tent. The word is tabernacle. It's used as a verb. Why don't we tabernacle here? Tabernacle was a tent. Why don't we pitch a tent and stay here for a while? Well, a tabernacle can be folded up and carried away. Now, in the Gospel of John, we are told that Jesus Christ tabernacled in a body of flesh. We are told that he tented. He was, his body was like a tent which could be folded up and done away with. But here, we are told that everything that God is sets up a permanent residence in Jesus and will dwell there completely, totally, permanently forever. The fullness of God will never cease to dwell in him. He will be the total embodiment of God's grace, God's love, God's wisdom, and God's power forever. And it means also that there is no domain in the universe that is left without his power being fully effective in that domain. Now, I think it is obvious if we understand at all the background of the letter to Colossians 
that Paul is directly contradicting the teachings of these Gnostic heretics which said Jesus Christ was only one of many beings between God and man. You see, the Gnostics didn't say Jesus was no good. They just said he was less than he really was. They set up a system where to get to God, you had to go through a number of intermediate beings. It's like the worship of and prayer to the saints. That's a Gnostic heresy. It's the same thing. But Paul says there is nothing between God and man but Jesus Christ. Now, there's some confusion at this point. At some, sometimes it is stated, I've heard it said, I have read and studied heresy of this sort, that the priesthood of the believer, that is that we go directly to Jesus and there's nothing between, means that every one of us is an authority unto ourselves. Well, Paul contradicts that right here. And I would remind you, all you have to do is look at the background of the book of Hebrews, which quotes the Old Testament in nearly every verse, and you will find out that priesthood has nothing to do with government and authority. Priesthood has to do with salvation, and that's all. And priesthood of the believer means that when you need to be saved, you go directly to Jesus. It does not make anybody an authority. Aaron the priest was never given any authority. He was always obedient to the prophet Moses. And the house of Levi was always obedient to authority. They were the priest. Paul tells us no one is between us and God save Jesus Christ. Now, this verse summarizes the things that have already been said about him, how he delivered us from darkness and transferred us to his own kingdom, how is the image of the Father, the creator of all things, the head of the body, Lord of all. All of these are summarized by saying that the fullness of God dwells in him. All the things already mentioned are wrapped up in Jesus. And then in verse 20, here is what I have called the reconciliation of blood. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, all realms of creation, the seen and the unseen, the visible and the invisible, the tangible and the intangible, the material and the spiritual, all things have been reconciled to God through Christ. And you know that sounds grand and majestic, but it hadn't happened yet, has it? There is war with the elements. Whether our aerosol sprays are to blame or not. The ozone layer around the earth is deteriorating. There's more skin cancer than there has ever been. We are uh, injured more by the mere presence of the sun than we have ever been. There is war with the elements. There is war within the spiritual realm with the forces of evil. 
But we need to understand that it is cause for rejoicing and if we could get hold of it, we would shout for joy that it is an accomplished fact, a settled reality that through the blood of his cross, Jesus has made it for sure that everything will one day be under the total control of the Father. He has reconciled all things unto himself. There will come a day when he restores the earth, when he renews creation, that there will be nothing that does not absolutely line up with his perfect will. And then all the wicked dead, the devils, the devil and his demons and everything that dishonors God, death and hell itself will be cast into the lake of fire and even that will be reconciled under the authority of God. Here is the reconciliation of blood. There will be no pocket of resistance left. The ultimate purpose of his death on the cross was to regain for the Father absolute control of all things. The medium of that reconciliation was the cross, the blood of the cross. Man is never called on to make his own peace with God. We could never do that in any way. If an individual dies and goes to hell, eternity separated from God is not good enough to pay for his sins. We can never reconcile ourselves to God and make peace with him. God did that for us. In reconciliation, God acts to reconcile and we are the reconciled. Now this verb reconciled is in the perfect tense. Now that means a different thing than it does in the English. It means reconciled back. The perfect tense means something that was accomplished in the past and continues to be effective in the future and will always be effective. He has reconciled back, back there, when it happened and for all time, he has reconciled all things to himself. He has created a peace that shall one day be absolute and universal in one kingdom under his control. His blood cleanses all believers. And even in judgment at the end, his blood shall ultimately cleanse all things. Beloved, the paramount difference between Christianity and all of the false religions of the world is this. Now listen very carefully. The paramount difference between Christianity and all the religions of the world is this. In every other religion, every one, either symbolically or literally, the believer in that religion is called on to shed blood for forgiveness. Now in some milder forms, it may be in total devotion 
of the person and what the person does. But in its blatant and open forms in the Old Testament religions that the Israelites were to destroy, even today, as was evidenced two and a half weeks ago in Guyana, the believers are called on to shed blood in Christianity. Listen, God shed blood so we wouldn't have to. That's the paramount difference between Christianity and all other religions. The false gods always call for blood, but he gave his blood for us once and for all. We are told in the Bible that the life is in the blood. And using the Old Testament metaphor, when Christ died at Calvary, his blood ran down from his body, was gathered in God's golden bowl and was sprinkled about an altar where it will be eternally effective, where every time you sin as a believer, God looks on the blood of Jesus and you are forgiven and cleansed and restored because of it. His blood demands steadfastness. It demands loyalty. It demands confidence in him. Out of the wonder of our redemption through his blood is born our unshakable loyalty and the radiance of undeniable Christian hope. All realms will be subjected to him. One day, as Paul says here, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made blood through peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, creation, the physical universe, has been oppressed because of the sin of man. When God created man, he gave him absolute authority and dominion over the earth. When man sinned, he forfeited that dominion, he threw it down, the gift of God, and the devil, who is called in scripture, the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, picked it up and creation has been oppressed because of sin in the world. In Romans 8, Paul tells us that creation itself groans waiting for redemption which shall come. And Paul tells us here that creation itself shall be freed from the effects of the fall of man and satanic oppression. One day in this entire universe, only perfection and righteousness shall dwell and everything that is not compatible with the perfect mind of God shall be in the lake of fire. And then in verses 21 and 22, here is the purpose of that reconciliation. Paul writes, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. 
Our native nature was at war with God. It alienated us from God. Without him, whether it is outwardly evil in the usual sense or not, our deeds are unholy. Our nature without Christ is willful opposition to God. For every human being since Adam except Jesus, when they reached the age of accountability, made a decision at some point to rebel against God and to go his own way. Our nature is willing opposition to a loving God and God undertook to change this through the cross. It says that we were alienated from him by our evil deeds. Now the word alienated goes along with what he said sooner in earlier in verse 13 where it says we were transferred from one kingdom to the other. The word alienated means that through our evil deeds we were transferred from one owner to another owner. What a graphic picture Paul paints. Through our evil deeds, our willful opposition to a loving God, every one of us at the point of our sin was transferred from the ownership of God to the ownership of Satan. Transferred to another owner. His fleshly body died on the cross that his spiritual body, the church, might be preserved and in the end be holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Now notice what his purpose is for our living. Now we see all through the Bible and in this passage what his ultimate eternal purpose for us is, but in this life his purpose for us is that we be holy, that is pure, spotless, separated from the world. Not isolated from the world, but separated from the world and its wicked ways. Blameless, that is in our personal conduct, blameless and beyond reproach, that is in matters of personal relationships. But I want you to notice something. He says that we are to be beyond reproach he does not say that we should be or ever can be beyond accusation. Now, do you see the difference there? How often do we, in our desires to believe the worst, now you think about it, even when it's somebody that you love and really care about, the native human tendency is to believe the worst when you hear it. How often have you heard it said, well, if everybody's saying all of that, even if some of it's not true, all of it's not true, some of it may be true. Well, let me ask you this. Did anybody ever live that was accused more vilely and awfully than Jesus was? Was there any truth to it? Did any Christian minister ever have more trouble in the ministry than Paul had? Was there any truth to it? You're right, beloved, where there's smoke, there's fire, the fire of an ungodly satanic tongue. That's what the fire is. We're to be holy, we're to be blameless, we're to be beyond reproach. We will never be beyond accusation for they accused our 
Lord also. His death created the unity of the true church and the true church is unified. In the book of 1 John, though his terms are not the same, John says, in effect, using Paul's terms, those who behave as though they are not a part of the body, it is because they are not part of the body. He said they went out from us because they were not of us. Now the language here is designed to counteract the false teaching that Christ was not fully human. We're to be blameless in matters of personal behavior, beyond reproach in matters of personal relationships. And then notice in verse 23, here are the true disciples. Paul writes, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, he does not say by the word if that we will lose our salvation. He has said things that contradict that in many ways in this one chapter. What he is saying is that we may lose our reward. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 to 15. Make a note of it. Look it up. Read it. Where he says those who are faithless in their Christian living will be saved, yet so as by fire. Now the tragedy of a lost reward is not something that we lose. For we are told in the book of Revelation that all of our rewards one day will be laid at the feet of Jesus. You see, it's nothing for us. It's nothing that we'll possess, nothing that we keep. Everything we're rewarded for and with will be given to Jesus. And the tragedy of a lost reward is to come before the throne one day with nothing to show for a life that was supposed to have glorified God. How much God's work depends on those who will not give up. We must be steadfast and immovable in response to him who never lets go of us. The Colossian church was being troubled from within. And the occasion of this letter is to see if they would resist, if they would stand for God. Paul voices a certainty that they will. But the question is, will we? If not, then we will not be blameless and beyond reproach. In the book of Ezekiel, we are told that we are to stand and speak the truth to those who need to hear it. And then, if they refuse to receive it, we have exercised our responsibilities before God. But we will be guilty of their blood if we do not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as I mentioned, we are told that we can lose our reward. Back in verse 7, verses 7 and verse 23 have something in common. 
Now in both verses, Paul talks about the commandments of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the ways of the Lord. In verse seven, he said they had learned it from Epaphras. Epaphras was the pastor of the church. In verse 23, he said, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And he is saying, as he has said so many times in all of his letters, that to be responsive to God is to be responsive to those whom God sends to minister his word. What great truth is revealed here. He who is the image of God made peace through his own blood on the cross. Now he is our exalted head. We are his body, united with him. As such, we follow him. We obey him. He must be preeminent. And the question for the believer is, do you follow him? If so, you will be obedient to, responsive to, and joyfully walking in his ways as revealed in his word. He is the head of creation because he made it. He is the head of the church because he bought it with his blood. May we pray. Father in heaven, how I thank you for the truth. It seems every time we cast in the line to measure the depth of truth that your word reveals. We never can find the bottom. It just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Father, I thank you for the confidence and the loyalty and the faithfulness that is born in us when we realize that it is an accomplished fact that all things belong to the Son. Now, Father, there are some here in this room today who do not know Jesus personally. Father, the one who shed his blood, the creator, the savior, is not in their lives and in their hearts. Father, I pray that by the convicting power of your Holy Spirit, you would press to their hearts the truth that only Jesus can save. That you would draw from them right now confession and repentance so that they may be saved. Father, there are many Christians, many Christians everywhere, Father, including here. Many of us at many times, all of us at some times, Father, who by self-will and careful living bring careless living, bring shame to the name of Jesus. Father, forgive us. May we realize that if we're part of the body, then we'll be totally responsive to the head and obedient to its commands. Father, there are those here who need to be active in serving you, and they're not at this time. Lord, I pray that if you need to bring their lives into this church, that you would do that. Father, I just pray that we will be responsive collectively, individually, to your ways, to your word, to your will, 
so that when that day comes, we'll have something to lay at the feet of Jesus to add to his glory. Father, you know our hearts. You know our needs. What you would have us do, I pray for grace and courage to do it now. I thank you for what you are doing because you've promised to do it through the ministry of the word. And I thank you for what you will do. I pray in his name. Amen.